You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black. This week on the show, we read the last three chapters of Martin Luther King Jr.'s book, Where Do We Go From Here? As I covered in last week's podcast, this was the first time I'd read anything by Martin Luther King Jr. And I talked about all of the reasons why I came to the book, so I'm not going to recap any of that here. I'm going to assume you listened to the first part. If you didn't listen to the first part, you should go listen to the first part if you care about that kind of stuff. Or you can listen to the second part and then the first. It's not really a spoiler situation, but uh, okay. So just going to go chapter by chapter here, talk about a few thoughts. Not going to get into as much detail as I did last week with like reactions, because I think most of those reactions are still pretty consistent. So I'm going to try to talk more about, like, the substance of what the chapters are about. So chapter four is called The Dilemma of Negro Americans. And I wrote my little summary of what this chapter is about. And I think it's best summarized as what the white man needs to do and what black folks need to do. And so it starts out with Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., kind of laying out what is happening and I think the most uh, the, the, the best representative passage is here. He says, And yet, if the present chasm of hostility, fear, and distrust is to be bridged, the white man must begin to walk in the pathways of his black brothers and feel some of the pain and hurt that throb without let up in their daily lives. So he goes through and he starts talking about the different misconceptions about black life, which I'll get into in just a moment. And then on the other side, he talks about what black folks need to do, not just expecting uh, white folks to come and uh, meet them even halfway. While we're fighting for that, we also have to take it upon ourselves to do other stuff. But okay, so what are some of the things that he says are misconceptions? One of the things is the idea about uh, an idea that's still mentioned today which is basically like, why don't black folks pull, pull themselves out of the morass the same way other immigrant immigrant groups did, like Italians or Jews? And Martin Luther King Jr. points out that uh, the type of uh, quote-unquote immigration is not the same, the scenario is not the same, nothing about that is the same. And it got me to thinking, what would Martin Luther King think about the term person of color? Uh, I personally, I mean, hate is a strong word, so let's use it. I hate that term. It's dumb. Uh, and unnecessary. It's good enough that we can all just be united under the idea that people who are minorities and people who are disadvantaged should uh, recognize that they have a common interest. But I think that using the term person of color takes away so much specific information about the people. Uh, and I think, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to speculate about what Martin Luther King would think, but I wonder if he would feel that way. That I mean, I I know he was all for unity, and he talks about it throughout this book. It calls for uh, the disadvantaged to to rise up together. It's definitely something that the right, who often champions him as like this peaceful guy, which I did talk about last week, 
Uh, definitely something that they would not like about him is him t- saying all the disadvantaged people should band together and uh, overthrow the 1%, basically. Um, but I wonder if he would say, yeah, although I like that aspect of unity, what I don't like is that this kind of uh, obfuscates some of the particular problems in this community, and I think specifically the black community, which is one of the things I don't like about it. Also, it's just it's just another bad representation of what a people are. People of color is nothing. I don't just, that's not a community to me. I guess if it's going to be forged into a community, that's fine, but I don't see people of color as a community. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I just think it's a kind of a useless term. Uh, if anything, kind of a, a, you know, just just like a, a completely like nonsensical term as well, because you can be a person of color who's an immigrant who came over, you know, a, a recent immigrant, which there's nothing wrong with that. Doesn't mean that you're less American, but it does mean that you're like if you are an immigrant wave of people into America in the last like 50 years, your community has a completely different set of problems than my community. So kind of a nonsense term in my opinion whatever but if people like it they like it uh okay so anyway that was one thing that martin luther king was talking about another thing was the idea that uh what where does this feeling of loss come from from negro americans i'm going to be using the term negro a lot because that's just what he uses uh and so he talks about the idea that it is a misery generated by the gulf between the affluence he sees in the mass media and the deprivation he experience, experiences in his everyday life. And this is a really important point because a lot of people now and then would point to advances that were being made and say like, well, you should be happy. And one, those advances weren't enough even in a vacuum. But then two, I think Malcolm had a quote about this, the idea that like, you give a guy a room in a hotel, but then he peeks into another room in a hotel, and in that hotel room, everybody's got, like, lobster and steak and stuff, and, um, you know, and then you tell him, like, oh, go back to your room. Like, just, no, no, go chill over there, you're fine. And that's just not something anybody can do. To drive the point home further, uh, Jay-Z, <laughs> the great philosopher Jay-Z, once, uh, there's a chorus of one of his songs, I can't remember the name of the song, but it's, he says, place yourself in the shoes of true felons and tell me you won't ball every chance you get. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly what Martin is saying there, but it's similar. It's like, you know, if you've just experienced nothing but abject poverty your entire life and then you get a, t- a taste of the wealth, you might go crazy with it. Similarly from, um, this is from, is that from the D- Evils on Reasonable Doubt? Yeah, 9 to 5 is how you survive. I ain't trying to survive. I'm trying to live it to the limit and love it alive. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's the idea. That's the idea. Going to work a nine-to-five job when that guy over there is just making crazy money. Kind of hard to figure it out. All right. So what else does he talk about in terms of misconceptions of the black community? Uh, Another one that is good is the myth of black-on-black crime. And I say the myth because uh, a couple years ago, I remember I was talking to somebody and they were talking about how, you know, like I think something, I think the stat is like 90% of crimes committed or murders, I think it is, committed by black people are on other black people but why is this myth because like the number for white people is something like 82 percent or something and then it's if you break it down further it's like most murders are committed by somebody you know and then if you break it down further most of the people you know maybe not you specifically but most people or many people know people in their racial group so those numbers are always 
misleading. And uh, the the writer of uh, one of the writers for the Root, Michael Harriet, had a great thread a couple of years ago where he talks about how you know you hear crime statistics and they're like, oh, like ninety percent of these crimes are committed by black people or something, you know, whatever numbers you hear and everybody just goes, Oh my God, every black person's just crazy committing crimes. And he breaks down why this is racist because it doesn't put into perspective that basically nobody's committing crimes. Like if you just go through the stats, it's like, Oh yeah, that's right. Like, although this amount of crime is being committed by this group, uh, there are only this many people committing the crimes in total. And that, percentage of the group is still a fraction of the group and martin goes er, martin like like we're best friends dr king excuse me dr king goes into this in the book he talks about how the amazing this is him now the amazing thing about the ghetto is so is that so few negroes have rioted so again to, to drive home the point that uh martin luther king uh was definitely on the side of like you know to use john lewis's term good trouble or would have been on the side of anybody who was angry about George Floyd. He thinks it's amazing that so few Negroes have rioted because they got reason to be angry. But he uses, you know, I don't think this is like an exact figure. But he says 99% of American Negroes have never thrown a Molotov cocktail or lit a match to comply with the admonition, burn, baby, burn. Love that. And he also talks about how 99% of the young people of the ghetto never come in conflict with the law. To echo that Michael Harriet point, or Michael Harriet echoing Dr. King, I should say. But So that's how the stats can lie to you. When somebody says 90% of murders committed by black people are committed by other black people, your immediate thought is like, damn, there's a lot of black folks killing black folks. And that's not to say that there are not issues in like Chicago or something like that. But that stat's misleading when you put it into the context of, oh, right, there's also a lot of white folks killing white folks. And just if you commit a murder, you're probably killing somebody you know. Doesn't excuse gun violence in Chicago. Doesn't excuse mass uh, mass or mass uh, mass shootings by um, by white folks in America. Domestic terrorism. So those are not excuses. Just speaking in generalities. So that's basically uh, Dr. King's admonition to the white man. This is what you need to do, and this is what you need to understand about black folks. Then, what do black folks need to do? First thing. He goes, he has three things, but the ones I want to highlight, he has more than three things, but he has three in specific, but I'm only going to highlight a couple and then some other ones. The first thing is love yourself. Uh, I remember Coach Hebert, my college coach, always told us you have to love yourself. That's what Dr. King is ad- advocating here. He says group unity involves uh, group trust and reconciliation. One of the most serious effects of the Negro's damaged ego has been his frequent loss of respect for himself and for other Negroes. And this is still a thing to this day. That's why we have things like Black Boy Joy and Black Girl Magic and uh, Black is Beautiful. And I had a t-shirt that used to say, uh, I love my blackness and yours. I had a t-shirt that said, Black is Beautiful. And it's because you got to build that up once it's been broken down. I, I've had someone ask me before, why do you wear those shirts? You know, why Why don't they have a white is beautiful thing? Well, it wasn't broken down the same way, was it? There wasn't a damaged ego to repair. So the first thing is loving yourself, really yourself, yourself, and then other black folks and not feeling like you're inferior or lesser than or anything about being black is inferior or lesser than. Right. And then also not trying to create a separation from you and other black folks like you're better or above them. And he gets around to that later. 
And then he talks about not sitting around and waiting. He talks about not sitting around and waiting. So, you know, that's the other aspect of Dr. King, although he's for sure not about the kumbaya stuff like, oh, yeah, let's just sit around and hold hands. Um, and he definitely does think there are tons of problems that need to be fixed by government intervention. Laws need to be changed and money needs to p- be pumped into the system. He also is an advocate of, hey, you can fix things while things are bad by just working hard and doing the right thing. But he doesn't let anybody off the hook. But it is important. You know, it's almost like Dr. King is really the best of both sides of that thing. You know, he's not like Bill Cosby and... um the pound cakers who tell you to pull your pants up and, you know, whatever, speak proper English or whatever it is that's going to get you out of the, the ghetto, apparently. Like, he understands, like, what is, what are the problems and how they are completely systemic. That being said, he does think that there are things we can do and can't just sit around waiting for stuff to change, which I think that Dr. King would have said, and any black person who's been in any black community will tell you people are not just sitting around waiting for things to change. You go into any black community, you will find all kinds of programs and community events and organizations that you can join. Nobody has been sitting around and he was asking people to continue to not sit around. And, you know, not that nobody has been sitting around. Some people have been sitting around, but that's not, you know, the large portion of folks, of black folks, and and it really never has been. If it, if it had been, nothing would have changed. Okay, let's get to one of our favorite segments here on the show. Uh, Dr. King's ideas that wouldn't have worked today because people on the right would have blasted it into the stratosphere by yelling about, uh, by yelling about it, okay? So the same people that always say, Dr. Dr. King is the model black man why can't you young black folks be more like dr king all he wanted to do is hold hands here's some things that they would have tried to skewer him for all right one subsidized work situations this one literally people who fox news pundits their heads would have exploded his idea here was like people who are basically unfit for normal jobs because they haven't had the proper training but also because like they've been in such abject poverty that even just learning how to like exist in the workforce won't work they need to have jobs where they're like allowed to come and go more flexibly you know so it's like all right well you don't really understand work as we think about it so like here's what we're going to do here's your work situation very flexible that would make somebody's head explode on fox news the second one i wrote down oh just thinking about the negro plight all the stuff at the top would have been just just no good i'm supposed to put myself in the shoes of a negro that would have been just out of this world nobody would have that's craziness. I mean, it's a joke, but really, like, the Ibram X. Kendi anti-racism stuff or any of those things, people get so angry about it when he's like, hey, we should all check our racism and evaluate whether or not we're, we're being anti, you know, active anti-racist. And people are like, why would I do that? Why do I have to do that? I'm not a racist. Like, well, you know, just why don't you just take, like, five minutes or, you know, whatever, three days and read this book and just see, think about it a little bit. But, Okay. He also advocates for decent housing, adequate education, and enough money for basic necessities. More on that later, but none of that is going to go get you very far there, Dr. King. Uh, he also talks about eradicating poverty and calls for the unity of specifically, uh, you know, whatever, this were the groups back then, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, and Appalachian whites. What? It's madness. And then he says... Um, Finally, that 
uh, let's just read this one at length. This is a little bit of, um, I think, Cedric Robinson-y, but uh, so I should go the other way around. Maybe, you know, the ideas are all in the air there. But obviously, Dr. King predates uh, Robinson. But here we go. He says, Let us therefore not think of our movement as one that seeks to integrate the Negro into all the existing values of American society. Let us be those creative dissenters who will call our beloved nation to a higher destiny, to a new plateau of compassion, to a more noble expression of humaneness. It's almost like he's suggesting that black folks are the reason that America is what it is today. I'll tell you what, that does not sit okay with me. Um, but seriously, that that would obviously piss people off today and is pissing people off with projects like 1619. So there you go. There's Dr. King's list of things that would not fly today by the same people who hold him up all the time and say, what a great guy. Um, and of course he was an amazing, amazing man. And those are all wonderful ideas and I love each one of them. Uh, all right, let's move on to chapter two where he talks about where are we going and this chapter is really about political power and leadership. And I thought this chapter was another example of how things have not changed. So one of the funny things is he, he talks about how the Republican Party can't rely on Lincoln. It's funny that 40, 50, 60, 50, 50 years later, they still use that Lincoln trope. Like that's still a trope. Uh, that's just funny. It, not because like whatever, it's offensive or something. It's funny that like you couldn't come up with something better in 53 years. Uh, Dr. King was pointing it out that this was silly 53 years ago. And also, by the way, I, Dr. King is not saying that like because they do that, we shouldn't vote Republican. He's, you know, he's for whichever party is going to listen and do what it is we want. And that is um, eradicating poverty and helping uplift black people. We will vote for that party. Uh, it so happens that the closest that any party has come to that so far um, has largely been the Democratic Party over the last 53 years, more or less. It's not uh, not a great example on either side. But, you know, anyway, uh, enough about politics. Anyway, so he's talking about political leaders and um, political power and how political leaders don't hold clout and that uh, community leaders do. And there was a poll done at the time. And specifically, Dr. King says political leaders are held in polite disdain. And he actually only had one black political leader on the entire list who made the list of like esteemed black leaders. And this was a, a poll done by, uh, oh, I can't remember, was it a Harris poll? It was a Harris poll done about black people. Now, I wanted to find a similar poll done today and really couldn't find one. But here's what I could find. There were in 1965, there were five U.S. representatives who were black. Today, there are 57. So there's 10 times as many. So just having more, um, and yeah, the population's grew, but I, that's not, you know, the population didn't grow by 10 times. But just having more means you have more chances to, to, to um, choose a black political leader who you might trust. And then the cabinet members thing, this is actually just kind of wild, but the percentage of cabinet members who are black was basically right around 5% until we got to Clinton. So from 1965 until Clinton, it's basically 5%. Nixon had zero. So there you go. Clinton gets an office. He has the highest of anybody ever, which is just kind of funny because of the whole Clinton thing. Despite the super predators thing, black people loved him. 27% of his cabinet was black. 27%. And then the numbers stay pretty high. And then they dip back down to 5% when who comes in the office? George Bush, you say? No, Obama. 
Obama dips it all the way back down to 5%. And the only, the only other time it stays down to 5% is Trump. So there you go. There's uh, some black U.S. cabinet leaders. And then the craziest stat of all here is that there have only been four black governors in history. Four. And this is as of November 2021. So, or excuse me, there are... Uh, people running to be the governor of Virginia in November 2021. We're not in November 2021 yet. I'm sorry. But so this is current. Uh, and this is from the P- Pew Research Center. Anyway, there, so there are more black leaders. But, but just that governor thing is nuts. Four black governors in the history of, uh, of the U.S. So anyway, part of why black people probably didn't trust politicians back then was because of the fact that there just weren't that many black politicians. But also... You know, after Obama's two terms, definitely, I think there are a large number of black people who liked Barack Obama, but I do think there is a lot of backlash since the time that he's left. And I know that uh, I've seen it online. If you follow Sandy Darity's uh, Twitter, the scholar from, I believe it's the University of North Carolina, The Economist, he does a lot of great work, and he also retweets a lot of conversations just to get conversations going. His retweets are not at all endorsements. But he retweets a lot of people who have expressed frustration with Obama's time in office and how not a lot was accomplished for black people. I know the Congressional Black Caucus was frustrated was frustrated with Obama. And on a personal level, uh, I thought, I've thought in the years since he left office, like, that the leadership has been cool in the sense that it's been, I want to be a leader for America, but it hasn't been as direct towards uh, the black community as I would have liked. And I think a lot of people would have liked, like in the midst of those George Floyd protests last year, it's cool that, you know, Obama's calling for unity and stuff. But I think that as the most visible black leader on the planet, that would have been a time to really hammer home, you know, what black people need in their communities. And the time for healing will come after that. And, uh, with that, you know, (laughs) like you want, you want this thing to be healed and you want to have unity. Well, first we need to make sure that we are actually addressing the concerns of the black community. It's not good enough just to say, let's be unified. Let's first, you know, like, like, like it was said in the first half of this book, you can't heal a wound when the knife is still in the back. That wasn't exactly what was said, but that's basically the idea. You can't stitch something up with the knife still in the wound. So anyway, that was interesting. And then he goes on to talk about how some black leaders, uh, they don't, you know, basically love themselves and their, their language changes, their income changes. They become, they, they, they change from the representative of the Negro to the white man into the white man's representative to the Negro. So before they used to go to the white man on behalf of the black man and say, like, this is what's up in our community and this is the change. And then they got paid and moved on up. And then it was, hey, what's the word? OK, they get the word from the white man and then they go down into the ghetto. And uh, I'm really using these terms from this book, by the way, go down into the ghetto and say, all right, here's what you all need to do. Thought that was interesting. And when Mar- when Dr. <laughs> I keep calling him Martin. <laughs> when Dr. King wrote this book, he was living in Chicago at the time. And, uh, you know, to use the parlance of uh, at least my time, he was keeping his ear to the streets. He wanted to be around his people in the communities that needed help. So that was important to Dr. King. 
Okay, and then moving on from there, he suggests uh, the solution to poverty. He says he's convinced of this, all right? And this is a verbatim quote. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed measure, the guaranteed income. Folks, this was 1968. So there you go. He's running on, he's, he's uh, using Andrew Yang's play platform, what was that, five years ago? So, or excuse me, one year ago? That was in 2019, wasn't it? Two years ago? So 51 years ago. But yeah, and he says how like people would have, so here's the interesting thought experiment here. He says a century earlier, or earlier in the century, uh, this idea would have been ridiculed, but things have changed now and we've realized like our, our relationship to work has changed. And I was wondering like, has it, you know? Like it seems like an awfully, awfully optimistic viewpoint from Dr. King. But then I was kind of wondering like, was it true then? I have no idea. It wasn't live then. I imagine it had to be at least a little bit true because he said it's widely, um, it had been widely discussed. And if anybody would know, it'd be him. It was pretty widely discussed now. And Andrew Yang has gained national attention and everything that's happened after that has been pretty annoying to say the least. So yeah, yeah, not the best spokesperson for this. But the idea of universal basic income, the UBI, I think is gaining more traction than ever before. So slowly but surely the idea is gaining traction. And so I guess Dr. King was right, but it's just still interesting to see that it was happening 53 years ago. I would say in the intervening 53 years, you didn't really hear much about the idea. Perhaps attitudes towards work were changing, but you still didn't hear much about the idea. Okay. Uh, lastly, he says, last point of this chapter really, because all this is about the idea that we need better political power and better employment. Like we need to be able to get people um, feeling good about being citizens in this country. So he talks about how we have to come to the point where we make the non-producer a consumer or we will find ourselves drowning in a sea of consumer goods. I would say that this has not been accomplished and that we are absolutely drowning in a sea of consumer goods uh, you can choose whichever metaphor or microcosm you like. Uh, you could start with the islands of plastic in the ocean or Amazon, or if you live in China like I do, Taobao, just places that will literally send out either a drone or a guy on a bike and bring you whatever consumer creature comfort you need to get through your day, to make you feel better, the retail therapy, the whole thing. And there's all kind. I mean, how many of us, and like absolutely everybody does it, how many of us just like see a new product and it's not even anything that you remotely would ever want or need, but as soon as you see it, you're like, I, well, I'm going to have to buy that now. And I don't mean like something that's cool or interesting. I mean like when you do it just because it's like a dumb, weird thing that, that you see, you know, like a flavor of potato chip and you're like, oh yeah, well no, I have to try that. Everybody doesn't, we do it all the time. And that's cool. If that's what hundreds or perhaps a couple thousand years of capitalism have led to is that I get to have like, I don't even know, Gautier flavored potato chips, then that is worth it. Then it's worth it. All right. Last little bit here, uh, the last chapter is called The World House, where he talks about um, how the world has to work together. And this is probably the most kumbaya the book gets, but not like naive, just, you know, he, he would like to see the world not kill itself. 
So he talks about racism without borders and how uh, there's racism in every country and how um, there's propaganda from right-wing people in America and from communists in China and how they're constantly saying this side is the worst and that side's the worst and how people feel that only communism has the revolutionary spirit and as Americans we've got to imbue citizens with the idea that things can change. Pretty depressing because all of that stuff is still true today. Um, and people are not working together. And the climate crisis would be the number one example of this. However you feel about climate change, whether or not you feel it's catastrophic or not, you certainly can acknowledge the fact that people aren't working together. So I think at this point, it's undeniable that it's happening. I think some people are basically like, right, I'll be okay. And that's fine, I guess, if that's the way you want to live your life. Uh, but even if you're one of those people, I think you could admit just that we're not working together to solve problems. And that's pretty much true. Another good example of this would be the Rona, but I hate talking about the Rona and I'm not going to do it here, but yeah, not working together. Eh, but you know, there was a little, there was some working together there, but you know, not enough. Uh, so anyway, people are not working together. So Dr. King's right. We definitely do need to work together if we're going to make things happen. I mean, he talks about in the book about like, how um, there's no reason, I, I pointed this out to one of my students like years ago, who was in like seventh grade at the time. I was like, yeah, you know, you do realize that nobody actually has to starve. Like there is enough food. And it's such a kind of silly hippie thought, at least within the, within the parameters of, you know, capitalism or American capitalism. Yes, nobody has to starve. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess not. But what, am I going to give people food for free? Come on, guy. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of depressing to read that last chapter filled with hope. And then 53, later, 53 years later, see people still doing, like, almost exactly the same stuff. That's the thing. It's like he's like, oh, the people in China are arguing with right-wingers in America. And they're both using propaganda. And it's like, damn, that was... <laughs> Uh, that exact same thing's happening. Okay, and then the appendix uh, goes through some of his um, his programs and prospects and ideas uh, for education and rights and housing. Uh, this podcast is already, how long are we at? 31 minutes, so just really quickly. For education, he talks about wanting people to catch up. Again, like, you know, he starts out with like, if we want people to catch up, if we want Negroes and poor people to catch up, poor Negroes and other poor people to catch up. This is what we need to do. It's like, but do we? I mean, it doesn't seem like we do, given our investment in education and people like Betsy DeVos. Uh, okay, so then, you know. Employment, we covered pretty well. Rights, he talks about a social and economic bill of rights, which, you know, uh, FDR had talked about. So he thought that was necessary, and it is. And it was a lot of what he was talking about earlier, housing and, you know, maybe a guaranteed income. And then lastly, he talks about housing, and he says we need the equivalent of a Medicare for housing. And, you know, we're seeing that over and over again in America. If, if you're from California, like I am, really anywhere in California, but especially Los Angeles and San Francisco, the, the dearth of affordable housing is ridiculous. And then there's also just a housing crisis. There's not going to be enough houses in general. And, uh... Obviously, gentrification has been a hot-button topic for the last decade or so, but it was even before that, it just wasn't quite as uh, as much of a, a flash word. Yeah, these are all really 
prescient things that Dr. King was talking about. And not even prescient. They were just issues then and they're issues now. Which, yeah, brings back to the overall theme of this podcast, which is, that's kind of sad. It's kind of sad that these things are still happening. But I do think some progress has been made. And in some areas and in others, it hasn't. It's always hard to kind of figure out the balance. But, yeah, I would say that the way I would typify the progress is progress made in spite of a lack of legislative action. Because I think that anything that's happened over the last 50 years, there's been a lot of infighting in politics and uh, the sportification of politics so that people are just trying to win and not trying to actually make the country progress. And then on the like in the private sector on in people's personal lives they've progressed whether or not the government has progressed with them so although a lot of programs have failed people um and some have helped uh, whether or not the government has been involved people have still been fighting to make things better and so they've gotten better in that way but um we'll see going forward we'll see going forward all right I don't really have any thoughts about how the book was written. I, I talked about those last week. This is ma- mainly supposed to be a show about how the books are written. But, you know, the thing is is that um, Dr. King's got a lot of ideas and a lot of ideas that resonate into the present time. So it's kind of hard to read them and not think just almost purely about ideas. But, okay, we are done with those ideas for now. In two weeks, I'm going to read Fred Moten's In the Break. The Aesthetics of the Black Radical Tradition. So that's another heavy hitter. And we're actually going to read that over the course of a month. So I'll be reading the parts one and two in that first podcast. And then, and talking about them. And then part three, two weeks after that. So yeah, starting that in two weeks. And then after that, fiction. I'm going to do three pieces of fiction in a row. So this has been a pretty heavy nonfiction slate and a lot of ideas. So I, I want to get back to fiction. I want to get back to different ideas. Ideas that are maybe not so concrete. Some that are more abstract. And uh, I'll be doing that after. But in two weeks it'll be Fred Moten. And the the uh, in the break. The, make, or the, the black radical aesthetic. So there you go. Alright. That's going to do it for today. See you in two weeks. Until then. Stay safe, stay black, and keep reading.